0: Hello, I'm Donald Robertson, and this is the Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life podcast. Today's guest is Anya Leonard. Anya is the founder and director of Classical Wisdom, a website and online community dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds like yours. She majored in philosophy and history of science and math with a minor in comparative literature at St. John's College in Annapolis, and received her Master's in Sociology at the University of Edinburgh, which is in Scotland, in case anyone was wondering. Anya was born in Norway, uh, but has lived in 12 countries. That's too many countries, Anya. Visited <laughs> 85 countries, and is currently residing in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. She recently published a children's book about the ancient Greek poetess called Sappho, the Lost Poetess. Anya, welcome to the show. How are you today?
1: Thank you so much for having me, Donald. I'm doing wonderful.
0: I'm in Montreal right now in the wonderful nation of Quebec. Uh, what's it like where you are? You're in Buenos Aires, is that right?
1: Yes, I am. And it is the, you know, the dead of summer here. So it's the opposite. Everybody up north is is freezing and I'm sort of positioning myself so I can get a bit of air conditioning and not being too upset that there's no video so people can't see how hot it is here. But uh, it's, it's wonderful. January and February in Buenos Aires is empty because everybody goes to the countryside and to the beaches and such. So you kind of get the whole city to yourself, which is always delightful.
0: We are the complete opposite in Quebec. It was so cold the other day we had one of those government warnings that say that you shouldn't go outside for more than 15 minutes without your ears covered in case you get frostbite and your ears fall off. So we, it's, the, it's very different where we are. Oh, I have, to do.
1: Yeah, I have lived sufficiently in, in countries that are cold. Uh, as you said, after four years in Scotland, I had to um, move down to Dubai and warm up uh, because I, I was done with the cold. And I also haven't lived in Russia and places like that. I, I can't do it anymore. I've given up. No more cold.
0: Well, that leads us nicely into discussing your background a little bit, uh, I think. First of all, we should say, how do we know each other, your
1: Uh, Well, actually, a schoolmate of mine uh, had been working with you, Adam Piercy, and uh, I had written that I'd launched Classical Wisdom, and I I must have posted an article about stoicism, and Adam reached out and said, oh, you've got to meet Donald. I've been working with Donald, and he's really involved with modern stoicism, and uh, the rest, uh, as they say, is history.
0: And that was in Toronto, where I was living at the time before I moved to Montreal, Um, so that makes me think the next question I should ask you is, why have you traveled so much, Alanya? You were you were born in Norway, is that right? Like, Did you grow up there or did you move somewhere else? And how did you end up living in so many different countries?
1: Well, uh, I'm one of those third culture kids. So uh, my whole life has been moving around and living in different countries. Uh, I was born in Norway and my mother's family is originally Norwegian. So I, I did grow up with a lot of Norwegian culture and my childhood. But uh, we moved to England, actually, when I was still a baby, about six months. And then I moved to America when I was four. Um, but then when I was 14, um, I left the U.S. And my father actually had moved to Kazakhstan. So I used to spend my summers in Almaty. And then I went to boarding school in England, which is where I met Adam, actually. So he's he's also part of that sort of third-culture kid uh Heritage, so to speak, and uh, yeah, you know, if if you grow up traveling around a lot and spending your time in different countries, you know, it's it's hard to settle down afterwards. So, once I finished university in University of Edinburgh in Scotland, as you said, I I moved to Dubai and after that to Taiwan. And my my goal was to try to see as much of the world as possible. So to do that, I would move to a region, uh, my My husband, then boyfriend, and I would we moved to different regions and sort of base ourselves in that region. So when we were in Dubai, then you know even though we were young, didn't have much money, it'd be easier to travel to see Oman or um, you know Egypt or Tunisia, all those places. And then when we were living in Taiwan, we could go to China and we we'd go to Borneo and you know Thailand and Vietnam, and and so that was sort of our our system. Um, But when we came down to Buenos Aires, we just sort of fell in love with the city so much. Um, and we came down here twelve years ago, and we've actually tried to leave a few times. And we went and lived in Mexico for a few years, but we always we always come back to this city. So now we're just um, we're Argentine residents and uh, settled down a bit after all these years.
0: And did you run out of living cultures to visit? And was that when you decided to get into time travel? Yeah. <laughs> Ancient culture. Is <laughs> well, that how, how did you get into the classics? Is there some connection between all the traveling and your, your interest in ancient civilizations?
1: Well, you know, it is funny. Bertrand Russell once had that observation that if you want to travel through time, you can really just travel through space. And the example he used then was, you know, you go to China and it was like going to the past and you go to New York and it's going to the future. Now, from my experience, I would say those two places have reversed. Um, but there is there is something fascinating about trying to understand some of the universal elements of people and that's when you're you know like i said in in a small back town in taiwan versus you know in the mountains in indonesia versus somewhere in europe or somewhere in in brazil like y- you find those elements of universality and something i love about the classics is also sort of Finding those moments of universality that go through time, that we can be connected to people that have were living and writing thousands of years ago, and we share the same fears and hopes and dreams and, and problems and solutions. Uh, it's very humbling to get that perspective,
0: so but it's going to bring us closer together.
1: Yes, totally. I, I completely so, and and the interesting thing I think people don't realize is that the classics is a like it's a shared culture that people all over the world find an interest in. So, whether you are in Asia or South America or in Africa, you are going to find people who love uh, studying the ancient world um, from all over the world. So it is it is great. I, you know, I, I had thought initially that my interest in the classics began when I went to St. John's, but funnily enough, I, I think I was helping clear out storage unit at my dad's and I found all my old high school notes and reviews and and uh, you know I'd forgotten that I I loved theater a lot when I was younger so I was did all the plays and I liked Antigone and things like that so it the, the love of the classics must have started earlier um and my mother always liked Greek mythology so that probably helped a lot.
0: Now you're trying to get them involved even younger because you've got this book that you've written about Sappho. Could you tell us a little bit about why did you decide to create an illustrated book about Sappho in particular?
1: Well, um, you know, I have a daughter. I am a mother, so part of my love of the classics is uh, talking to my daughter and seeing her enjoy it and, and telling her the stories. And it's and she gets so excited by them that it's it's extremely rewarding. But um, what I found that was just so cool about the Sappho story was how recently we're discovering new archaeological artifacts and and literary evidence of her of her work. So for those who who don't know, um the, the story revolves around the discovery of the brother's poem. and it's just it's one of those really exciting moments because it collaborates other historical information about Sappho. and for for those who don't know, most of Sappho's work has been lost for various different reasons, Um, in part because she wrote in a really unknown, not unknown, but a very more obscure dialect. And so I I usually compare uh, Sappho to Robbie Burns, for instance. And and people outside of Scotland really struggle to understand Robbie Burns. So you can imagine how thousands of years down the line um, that might result in lost work uh, because of this... the, not the severity but the the accent is unless you're Scottish it's really hard to know what he's writing about I
0: have that problem with my own accent <laughs> occasionally what what did you what age range did you have in mind for the book though I guess we should say it's a children's it's an illustrated book how old um do you, do you expect your readers to be
1: it, yeah, it's sort of three to seven. It's one of those ones where you can write, uh, you can read it to the child, and then when they start to be first readers, they can read it. But I've tried to do a lot of things to make it work on several levels. So, for instance, there's some of Sappho's original poetry in the book. I also use a lot of Sappho's poetic devices, like the Sappho's super superlatives. So she, it's a very common technique she uses throughout her poetry, where she says you know, more wider than white or more golden than gold. And so I, I kind of tried to incorporate some of the poetic devices. But just to say what, what happened was, is in 2014, there was a kind of some papyrus a cartilage of, inside a, a vase that was discovered to be a poem written by Sappho. And so even though we only have like one or two but like we only have like one full poem of hers to, to find another poem was extraordinary. Uh, so that's why it's so exciting. So it's, it, the whole book is sort of, it's a, a bit about poetry. It's a bit about, uh, the classics and history, but it's also about archeology span and how it's, it's still a very exciting field.
0: There's kind of a story in itself, a story within a story within a story in a way, like how some of these texts survive and how they're received in different countries. Just to hark back to something we were talking about a moment ago in relation to travel, although the classics are appreciated in many different countries, I find that the appreciation kind of varies quite a lot. So, Stoicism is quite popular in Toronto. That's kind of I was giving talks and doing things like that there. I spent a lot of time in Athens. Like, you know, I think Stoicism's not really that popular in Athens, although it's its home. It's kind of surprising. The Greeks in general are. Obviously immersed in the classics, you know. But that's the one school of philosophy that's based in Athens that they they're not really that interested in. Um, although maybe that's beginning to change. Have you ever have you found that like that? Sometimes you're surprised that when you visit an area, they're more not more interested in certain subjects, or that some subjects are, are more popular than you would think. For example, you mentioned you also mentioned Robbie Burns. You know, my understanding is that Burns is very popular in Russia. Really? Yeah. <laughs> But in my hometown, AR, like where he was, he was born. I guess you get too used to a subject sometimes, and so when I was a kid growing up, we kind of loved Burns, but it was also sort of cheek, corny. It was like what your your parents were into, you know, and the old folks were into and stuff. So it wasn't cool, you know, uh, to be to go to the Burns Club and things like that. Um, so sometimes, you know, things are received differently abroad.
1: Well, certainly. And I think, you know, there is a tendency of people not exploring their own backyard or being bored by their own culture or history that um, it's often the the foreigners or the the newly residents that get most excited about it. And, you know, having lived in Scotland for four years, I loved Burns Night, you know, Ode to Haggis. And I, I mean, so here I was happily having Cayleys and and trying to in, and enjoy the Scottish culture. And I find it's something here in Argentina, too, like, the Argentines will have to say, what in the world are you doing here? <laughs> I mean, our economy is awful. Inflation's bad. And I have to remind them that maybe because of those things, the Argentines put a lot more energy and effort into their families and into their friends. And, you know, it's a it's a culture where you have a Parisia every week and everybody gets together and it's very community-based. Um, for a lot of Greeks, depending on when they or how they were introduced to the ancients in the classical world... Um, you know, it, it can affect their lifelong love of it. And uh, it's something, you know, our shared friend Ehenia has been working on with regards to teaching younger people ancient Greek in a way that they're going to love it and not grow up and resent it or, or you know, to, to show the the fun way of enjoying it rather than, like, the forced way.
0: Yeah, definitely. I feel like the time is right for, you know, there to be a shift in uh Greece, uh, at least for you know, maybe the next generation to start to kind of like see classics from a different perspective, because I think in the past it was taught to to people in school in a way that, you know, my Greek friends tell me to sort of turned them off to the classics. They were taught it in a kind of boring way, like, right? and maybe parts of it that were you know not as interesting. I love Socrates and I love Plato you know, but there's bits of it that are kind of a bit dry and a bit abstract. And then there's other bits that are really practical and intriguing. And, you know, so you, you can choose to pick almost any subject and make it boring. (laughs) You know, unfortunately that's, sometimes that's happened in the past with the classics. So that leads on nicely to the next big question that I wanted to ask you, which is why do you think classics are so important today? Um, You know, your mission is to introduce people to the the classics. You know, why why is it important to do that? Why aren't they already as familiar as they should be with the subject? Why isn't it more accessible to them? You know, and what do they have to gain from getting into the classics?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, one, you often have to sort of define what the classics are. And, uh, you know, the classics with the big C is sort of like a time period that I usually define as sort of... Minoans to the fall of the Roman Empire slash fall of the Eastern Empire, uh, depending on how broad you want, and it's a region that can cover all the way from India to North Africa, to to England and you know up to Scotland, and uh, you know it's it's an extremely multi-cultured, diverse, uh, fluid time period in which. You know, people were interacting with each other enormously, and inspiring, and reacting, and, and fighting. And I, I do want to preface it that for there are many, many different time periods and many, many different cultures to study. And I think broadly speaking, the study of any time period in in history is worthwhile. I think people as a make the mistake of just saying, "Oh, that was in the past." You know, th- if they didn't have smartphones, then what does it matter? Kind of thing. So I, I think. In general, if if there's another period or place in history that inspires you or somebody around you like that, do that, you know, because I think just the study of history in general is extremely important for, as I was saying before about realizing the universal elements, um, this like chain of humanity that we're part of to get a perspective on our own lives, to kind of get a bigger picture. It's, it's a way to step back and, and see the forest from the trees. And I think that process is, in, is incredibly important and can be done with any period or place in history. Why the classics specifically are interesting is because of the influence they have had. And it allows people to sort of enjoy subsequent histories in a much more profound level. Um, and again, because the classics were studied by people all over the world, you know that this means you can also enjoy uh, later philosophy, art, literature, cultures. You know, not just in the West or in Greece or Italy. It, it's it's part of a sort of a shared humanity. So, um, I always say to people because it basically until the nineteenth century, like you weren't considered educated if you hadn't studied the classics, if you hadn't studied Greek or Roman, uh, Latin. And and as a result, you know, you go and walk around the Prado or the Louvre, and you're going to see so many references to the classical world that, y- you know, p- people just aren't going to be able to appreciate it if they don't know. And my daughter, for instance, she, she loves mythology, and she loves one of her favorite stories is The Judgment of Paris. And we were in an art museum, and sure enough, there's, you know, there's so many paintings of the Judgment of Paris, and and she looks at it, she goes, ooh, that one's Hera, that one's Aphrodite, that's Athena. And she, she so she loves going to these art museums and seeing these depictions, uh, and if somebody didn't know what that reference was, it, it would just, it would be lost. I mean, they might say, well, that's a pretty picture, but they'd have no understanding what it is. So um, I, I think they're really valuable for understanding Subsequent history and subsequent works and literature and philosophy, um, but as for me, as a time period in of itself, I also find it fascinating. It's and and you know, I another thing I always make sure that people know is that when you're studying history, there's not they don't have like an absolute authority on what's right or wrong. It's that's not the way to see history or or philosophy or previous works. It's it's about engaging in a continuous conversation that. Uh, great thinkers before us and i'm I'm thinking of great thinkers before us, like you know even the founding fathers or patriarch or or later philosophers, even within the ancient period, they would disagree or agree with different writers before them, you know so it's it's about having engaging with these original texts, coming up with new ideas regarding them. Uh, taking the gems of wisdom, discarding the the bad, and and learning, just always learning.
0: Yeah, it's definitely, it's a conversation uh, that we can become part of. I, I'm going to make two quick observations about it. One is that from my point of view, my interest is mainly in Greek and Roman philosophical classics and stuff that's kind of related to that. Um, one of the things that strikes me is that Ancient thinkers often address fundamental ideas that have somehow become neglected over time. So, for example, you know, the Internet's awash with people talking about self-improvement and self-help. But often, if you go back and read Plato's dialogues, he's asking more fundamental questions like, what is wisdom? What is the goal of life? What is the nature of love? Uh, and somehow these questions, although oh, a child in a way could tell you that they seem basic, they seem fundamental, they don't get asked as much as they should today. So I think we've lost sight uh, in some ways of basic themes, fundamental questions, which were more common in ancient literature. I think that's one of the things that we gain. Also, even in in, uh, in literature and in Greek tragedies, for example, we find themes that seem quite raw and fundamental and, and basic that have kind of got watered down or, or lost over the centuries.
1: I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And, you know, it's amazing. I think when people think about philosophy, they kind of get turned off by modern philosophy. And I appreciate that a lot of modern philosophy tried to create new terms because they thought language wasn't being defined enough. And, and that's fine and all good. But what was the end result is it gets this terminology-heavy jargon that can be... Like a barrier to a lot of people. And that's a real shame because I think philosophy rather than something you study should be a way of life and a way of thinking. And as you say, those ancient texts do such a wonderful job of bringing up really basic, but extremely important and very practical questions. And another good one I always think is, is like, what, what's a good friend? Yeah. You know, what kind of friends do you have? And like the just, just the act of asking that question will make you a better friend. just just asking it.
0: You've actually had a really important example because many of the themes in, in ancient philosophy still exist in modern philosophy, although often they kind of become obscure and, and technical. But the question about the nature of friendship, which was common in ancient Greek philosophy, uh, is really important to Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, many other thinkers. That's almost completely disappeared from literature and, and modern philosophy. It's kind of interesting. Like, that's one that's dropped out completely. Yeah, and point. yet one that would
1: affect all of us. I mean, yeah. I mean, I hope everybody who's listening here has at least one friend and that friendship should be valuable and how to maintain and nurture that friendship is a huge component into the happiness of our life and the meaningfulness of our lives.
0: I was going to say, I feel like there's some kind of connection I can't quite put my finger on between this aspect of the classics and what we were saying about teaching classics to children. You know, because you've put your, you know, you've hit on there, I think an important, a really interesting example. Um, But it's also one that children find really relevant, like the question of what a friend is, you know, how to distinguish between, you know, good friends and bad friends or people that merely appear to be friends but aren't actually in reality. You know, these are really important questions for children and ones that children find fascinating
1: completely and and in the ancient world you look at what involved in an education and there are a lot of fields that i think we are missing out on um that that maybe we we put now into a, into a small niche class in philosophy like logic or ethics or rhetoric but these are they they should be everyday parts of our education we should all be practicing in what is logic and what, what is the good, what makes something good, or what's a good action. Like th- this would make for better families and communities if everybody asked that. And, you know, I've done a lot with like Massimo, for instance, Pugalucci on the, the virtue, the, the quest for character. And uh, it's very funny because the concept of nourishing virtue um, kind of comes up again and again. And if you if you don't practice it, you're not gonna be very good at it. So it's strange that we don't think of it as something worth practicing or instructing on or discussing.
0: Use it or lose it. Yeah. I have Massimo's book right in front of me right now, actually. Like about Socrates and Alcibiades. Um and actually you you you're the second point I was gonna make. You you've you know, you're way ahead of me, you've kind of touched on, which is you know, part of what's going on here with the classics has to do with the Industrial Revolution and the division of labor and things that predated that. But basically, the fact that now, for instance, my two fields, I guess, are psychotherapy and philosophy, um, those are two completely separate fields now. But in the ancient world, they weren't. Like uh, a psychotherapist and philosopher would be the same guy. Yep. Like, <laughs> and, you know, philosophical texts had a psychotherapeutic dimension and, and vice versa. So there, these disciplines, we've kind of artificially separated them. In way, and so one of the things that we get from looking at classics often is an overlapping or even integration of themes that have been kind of artificially separated in our own culture.
1: Completely. And and it's something, it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, I've recently launched this Classical Wisdom Kids project and I initially sort of separated... Each week, I would do a different genre. So I'd be like, okay, this week, I'm going to do philosophy. And this week, I'm going to do math and science. And this week, I'm going to do sort of poetry and art. And this week, I'm going to do history. But I keep finding that they they blend into each other that the, you know, I I did the last one on ancient columns like ionic, Doric and Corinthian but of course math and science and golden ratios started coming up and so met at times philosophy was connected with with math and science uh, and poetry with math and science and you know you're totally right all these sort of disciplines they're not so neat and tidy but they shouldn't be.
0: I became interested in history far more like once I began studying philosophy and sometimes you know one of these subjects can act as a kind of gateway that leads you into learning about other subjects that you hadn't even considered studying and so another strange benefit of history is you acquire quite a lot of general knowledge
1: yes and yeah interesting classics well, and you can also get very niche knowledge too, though. I mean, I did a great event on the Battle of Actium, and now I know way too much about that battle.
0: <laughs> yeah. What other things have you learned about since you've been working on... I mean, how long have you been doing classical wisdom for now? And, you know, what what are the, some of the kind of highlights for you? Like things that... Were the particular things that you learned about that really kind of changed your perspective? Uh,
1: well, you know, this last year, we celebrated 10 years of classical wisdom. So... That was very exciting, and uh, it's amazing that it's been going on for a decade now. I'm very—it's my first baby, um, but there's so many things. I've—I've I've been just very fortunate. I feel like every every opportunity I've had to speak with a professor or do events or with authors and writers and philosophers, you know, I've come away all the richer. Just even if I didn't agree with them necessarily, the opportunity just to to think about these things and, and live, you know, the life of the mind wherever and whenever we can. Um, but some of the, I have like everybody who's enjoyed the stoic movement found a lot of the principles of stoicism very helpful in my day-to-day life, especially the concepts of, uh, acknowledging what you have in your control and what's not in your control. I think that's been hugely beneficial. Um, Another for me, I I like a lot talking about skepticism and the ability to listen to ideas with an open mind and to be able to suspend judgment. I think right now in our kind of increasingly polarized world, the ability to suspend judgment um, is, is going to become more and more important.
0: It's a lost art. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm hoping to bring it back. Bring it back.
0: We should reintroduce uncertainty.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, nowadays we we are, we're really encouraged to have like a strong opinion about something immediately, you know, whether it's climate change or epidemiology or, or, you know, Russian, Ukrainian politics. I mean, and these are really complex topics with many layers of, of information that's constantly changing and being updated. And, and yet if you don't, come out with a, a approved opinion, whichever side you happen to be on, you know, you, you then get attacked and, and you want to say to people, no, 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 this, this is, we, we should be pausing. <laughs> we should be learning um, before speaking, uh, if if possible.
0: This is a completely, you know, the, the Socrates, in a way, one of his fundamental points was to argue that one of the most dangerous things in human life is to have unwarranted certainty, about things that we actually don't know. He called it double ignorance. Like, not only do we not... It's fine if we don't know something and we recognise that we don't know it, but to not know that you don't know something and falsely assume that you do know it, he thought, is is the cause of many problems in human life. And you mentioned climatology, epidemiology. Most of the conversations that we see happening about these things are by people who are not climatologists or epidemiologists, you know, their social media influencers or politicians for the most part.
1: Exactly. And you know, that, that great phrase, I know, I don't know. Um, but also, I do not claim to know that which I do not know. And uh, I think that's a really essential lesson. And that's kind of coming back to what you said about what can we learn from the classics? What are these sort of really fundamental questions? And the fact that two and a half thousand years later we still have to kind of remind people don't say you know something when you don't know it
0: <laughs> really basic stuff yeah like but it kind of it gets forgotten um that's one of the things we get from the classics and I, that reminds me actually of one of the other things i wanted to ask you one of my controversial questions for you Anya, which is you know what if somebody was to come along and they were to say well classics is only for boffins right like, you know, you can't study classics unless you're a university professor or, you know, the, you've got a degree or a doctorate in the subject. You know, or you can't have ordinary people going back, reading ancient Greek and Latin texts, for example. And don't you need to be a scholar of Latin or ancient Greek in order to uh, appreciate these texts? What would you say to the idea that you need to be a boffin to appreciate classics?
1: Well, first off, I'm not sure what I know what that word is, a boffin?
0: An expert.
1: Oh okay. <laughs> um, I don't think I've heard that term before. Um well I think you know it's it's the problem we have in academia in a way, and this is sort of a just a systematic issue, is that it's sort of geared to make people very niche and very experts and very extreme. Small, narrow fields, and you kind of have to do that because to get your PhD, it has to be in a topic that nobody's written before, and to find that out of you know the millions of people, that it's sort of naturally made to be that way. And so as a result, you get these brilliant ideas and really interesting concepts, but they're really, really niche. And one of the beauty, beautiful things about the the classical world and ancient history and philosophy is as we were just saying, the interdisciplinariness of it and the fact that it can be so practical in our here and now. Um, and so what I love is when you have ordinary people, and I'm doing air quotes here, um, talking about the classics from a more general perspective or from uh, like a daily life perspective. I think that's really, really important. I think that this sort of information the, the more access people have to it, the better. And history is filled with great thinkers from, from all over that maybe have come from more humble backgrounds or uh, historically marginalized backgrounds. And their access to these great books and great conversations, you know, were open their minds to, to be part of that conversation. So I, I actually think it's really valuable to have people beyond just Uh, professors being able to talk about these ideas.
0: I think that's true. And actually throughout history, you know, there are many examples, not only of people who achieved great insight by coming at a subject from a different non-academic background, bringing a different perspective to it. Um, But also some of the biggest advances in thought throughout the centuries have actually occurred because of people misinterpreting or misunderstanding Preceding thought, so a lot of people would say that Aristotle misunderstands Plato, why? Like, but we wouldn't say, well, he should shut up then, why? <laughs> like, you know, because it doesn't matter. You know, some people say that the later Wittgenstein, like, so Wittgenstein has kind of like two phases in his career. He's one of the most important philosophers in the West. Like the later Wittgenstein looks like he doesn't understand his own earlier writings, which is kind of like a weird uh, situation. He didn't understand himself. like we can can, yeah that's that's impressive yeah yeah like it's quite an achievement he went away for a while like and then came back and started doing philosophy again but he you know sometimes it's misunderstandings in philosophy or in other areas i thought that explain uh progress so what are the obstacles you think we face in popularizing the classics and making them accessible to so-called ordinary people
1: well i think one of the fears that people have nowadays is that we kind of look back over history and judge it based on standards that we like to think are our current standards. Um, And I think the problem with that is, one, if you're going to try to find in history somebody who is perfect, Good luck, they don't exist. (laughs) So basically you're saying all previous history is, you know, is not going to be useful because you're going to find some flaw with every single thinker or writer out there. Um, But secondarily, like, we shouldn't throw the the baby out with the bathwater. And I think there's sort of a tendency to do that right now, to say, okay, well, uh, I don't like this aspect of this person or this aspect of them, you know, wasn't good. uh, So as a result, we're not going to take any of the useful a a universal truth that maybe they did discover upon him. I always liked using the example of, of Newton and gravity. And just because he was really into alchemy doesn't mean that we're not all going to just fly off the earth. So it's, it's important that people learn how to think about the classics um, and how to think about history and ancient philosophy and to, take the good and, and leave out the bad. And I think that's a process that we kind of need to show that it's it's a worthwhile process.
0: I think you, you don't, like studying the classics at all kind of forces you to do that, I hope, because you can't get very far in reading the classics if you're going to agree with everything they say. You know, you have to be <laughs> kind of selective and you have to, you know, relate things to the historical context or you, you're not, you're going to struggle to get very far with it. So, but it teaches you this kind of what I would call cognitive flexibility um, in modern psychology, the ability to kind of look at things from multiple perspectives. I someone I've heard people say actually a few times, um, for instance, that they couldn't read a book because there was something in it that kind of conflicted with their values in a way that I kind of understood. But for example, the use of uh, gendered pronouns. Um, I've seen people say that they couldn't read books because they were all using the masculine pronoun too much. There wasn't enough reference to women in it. Um, but I thought if you're selective enough that you find it impossible to read something that doesn't share your values in that regard, you, you, it's going to be impossible to read most classics. You know, you reading classics forces you, I think to set aside your own values temporarily and make allowances for the difference of opinion that you have with the person that you're studying and then to be selective and figure out which bits you can take from it that you actually agree with
1: yeah I mean like I can imagine there's so much value that Socrates has given to us in the history of philosophy but I can imagine he would have been kind of annoying to hang out with I mean I don't think We've got a funny article about him, you know, uh, being a terrible husband uh, because he always complains about his wife. But, like, joking aside, I think what's really valuable too is that um, to see the classics from different perspectives. And the more people can approach the original texts as well, the more you're going to be able to open up and, and see the truth of a lot of things. And, you know, I think. Sometimes people mischaracterize the classics as sort of being sort of just this whole straight white male world when, in some ways, that's kind of the fault of the Victorian era. <laughs> you yeah, know absolutely. and and Sappho is a perfect example of that because they retranslated her works so it fit in with mm-hmm. what their narrative of what she was saying was like. Um, and then if you go back to the original text, it's very different. I think Emily Wilson's translation of, of the um, the Odyssey is another perfect example that when we have new and fresh eyes looking at these ancient texts, we're going to see something different about them. And I think we'll realize that we can't kind of project our modern societal structures on the ancient world in the same way. And and you'll find too many inconvenient Things that don't fit in with the narrative, and like, for instance, the Odyssey. Like, you know, Penelope's the star (laughs) of anything. There's, you know, so many times, you know, Odysseus lands on a on the island, and the first information he says is, "You go to the queen; she's the most important person." And Mm -hmm. there's so many times in the ancient world that, like, the Amazons, the the whole myth and culture of the Amazons was one of the most popular myths of the entire ancient world, and so. This idea that it's kind of this one perspective narrative, I think, is very misleading. Um, and that, but if you go back to the original text, I, I think people will find more value in them that even reflects their current thinking than than they might have thought was there.
0: I'm working on a book about Socrates at the moment that's kind of it's a bit like how to think a Roman Emperor. So it's it's kind of his life story, but interwoven with philosophy and psychology. And it's to a large extent it's a story about women. Like I think that you know, it's not obvious at first, and partly because of translation, partly because of the way the subject's taught. But if we try and retell Socrates' story, women feature really interesting. Women feature quite prominently in it.
1: I'm not. I'm not surprised about that at all. And I know he was heavily influenced by a lot of the women in his life. Um, I mean, when I when I said he was probably a terrible husband, that that's sort of the, the funny thing is that by how we determine a terrible husband today. Uh, you know, he—it's kind of because he just takes the mick out of her.
0: <laughs> she was pretty hard on him. Yeah, <laughs> she threw cold water over him and ripped the shirt off his back and things like that. She apparently she jumped up and down on a cake that Al Alcibiades brought him as well. That's, that's one of my favourite stories. Yeah. Um, so they
1: they had a more nuanced relationship than we we want to depict him as. Yes. But exactly.
0: If we were basically, what I think what we're both saying is, if if someone was to read that and think, well, I'm not reading this rubbish like that guy sounds like he was a uh, sexist or she sounds like a terrible woman, you know, then we miss out on, you know, if we were to ignore everything that contains anything, like that's not in accord with our modern values, we, we, we pretty much scrap the, all of the classics. And, yeah. Uh, and that's a shame. and it,
1: it's a, it's a, an exercise in hubris to think that whatever our modern stance is, is the right one and that we're currently the most moral. I mean, who knows what in a thousand years they'll look back and be like, whoa, did you know what those people did and said? <laughs> so yeah, um, we, we, we should be, you know, even humbled in that we somehow know what the right moral stance is now. I mean, that's, the whole point is, is that we, we need to ask that question in the first
0: place. Well, I, I think that actually reminds me of something else that I wanted to ask you. And I think this is a good time to ask it. I read a book, Um, a long time ago by Bertrand Russell, which um, maybe most people won't have heard of, called The Conquest of Happiness. It's an odd book because it's very much a self-help book, but it's it's what I would describe as highbrow self-help. You know, Russell wrote it. It's filled with references to classics. Um, And in it, Russell, who is an atheist, says the closest thing that he can imagine to a spiritual experience is the study of history, But not history as it's normally taught, as a kind of series of disconnected events, but history understood in terms of our place within it and our relationship and indebtedness to the past from a broader perspective. And so Russell thought teaching people to view themselves as part of this long conversation and long story uh, was the closest thing as an atheist you can imagine to a mystical experience
1: i I completely concur, I mean because it's it's the ability to step outside of ourselves and you know uh, for people who have studied say anthropology, even the concept of of religion and god is is something that's bigger and beyond you know just our our individual and our concept and to to have that sense of awe of something greater than you and to see your small place in that grandeur um yeah it's awe-inspiring it's it's and it's that perspective that I think when we first brought this up that I think is so instrumental um in the value of studying history whichever history you choose to study but that that gives you that that moment of realization
0: and wait the last thing that I wanted to touch on before we, we wrap up our conversation today is where does that leave us in relation to the future we've talked a lot about the past so I think a good place to finish is by saying a little bit more about the future and I know that you currently have a project on the go uh, to do with children is that right called Classical Wisdom for Kids could you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in that direction
1: yes uh, thank you for asking yeah Classical Wisdom Kids is um, its name and I think it's it is important to get children excited about history and philosophy and literature at a, at a young age because you know then it, it's not daunting later on and they can be familiar with these characters and they can be excited and so later on when they when they pick up these books um, they're they're off off to the races so to speak but it's important to remember that you know the next generation is the future stewards of history and if we don't preserve history, um it it will be lost. I mean, right now, we've already lost like eighty percent of all ancient history. Most of it, I think even higher 90%, we've lost it. Never and you know, every now and then we can we can find something in a Egyptian garbage heap, uh which is which is miraculous to me and and absolutely amazing. But if we don't want more history to be lost, we have to teach the next generation the importance of preserving it. And I think that's um, a project that you and I, have, and you more so have been working on with regards to Plato's Academy Center uh, in in our role today of finding important historical sites and preserving them and showing the importance and, and bringing awareness to it. Um, and, and if we want these projects to last longer than our own lifetimes, you know, we, we do need to instill that, that importance to the next generation. So it's that, uh, the idea, you know, you want to, society is doing well when it, it plants seeds in for which the trees, they'll never enjoy the shade of. And um, I, I think that's even more so with the classics and just completely selfishly. Um, I'm doing this with my daughter and, you know, I'm coming up with these lessons and we're doing them together. And she, she gives me her input of fun games and and things that she wants to do and she adds drawings and comes up with ideas and so it's it's a very it's a, a family project. Um, so everything is tested kid approved and tested uh, and I'm more than just my own child so I'm <laughs> larger than one testing but um, so it's just truly selfishly um, I'm having just a, an absolutely lovely time doing it with her. So it's something I, I hope we can share with other kids and parents who who feel the same.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks very much, Sonya, for joining us. Uh, do you have anything else that you want to add before we wrap things up for today? Uh,
1: no, I mean, just if, if anyone is interested in seeing what we're doing at Classical Wisdom, you can go to classicalwisdom.substack.com. Uh, we have a, a free newsletter there, and we also have a, a membership for folks who want more from the classics and more resources, uh, or to just even, you know, uh, support our ongoing project. And Classical Wisdom Kids is classicalwisdomkids.substack.com, or you can just type in classicalwisdomkids.com as well. Uh, And we also have the option, if because it's a brand new endeavor, and it's one we're just getting off the ground, um, you can gift subscriptions to people you know who have kids, or you can also just donate, because we are going to be doing a lot of Outreach programs and connecting with schools with kids and, and helping them bring resources and projects and things, so, so that kids of all backgrounds all over the world can enjoy ancient history and philosophy.
0: Cool, and I'll try to include links to all of those things in the in the post if if anyone's looking. So, thank you everyone for listening to Stoicism Philosophy as a Way of Life. And uh, be sure to share the link with your friends. I'm looking forward to next time. But for now, it's goodbye from this episode's guest, Anya Leonard, and uh, and from me, Donald Robertson. Bye.